I speak to you in the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. The uh, lectionary readings for the Sundays in Lent are uh, very meaty. There's just a lot going on, and it's impossible for me to try to cover all the stuff that we've got in front of us this morning. Uh, And they're all great. I mean, they're all amazing readings. Even the psalm has a lot of meat in it. Uh, So inevitably, I have to pick something on which my reflections are going to be based, and I'm going to go with the gospel this morning. And I, I have to start my reflections on the gospel by saying this is another one of those passages where I, I, it, it sort of highlights for me the difficulty I have in reading this as if it were literal history. Um, I mean, I, I, not only, I mean, never, never mind the other scholarly questions about historical veracity um, and who was the eyewitness for this event. I'm, I'm just imagining the character of Jesus coming back from his 40 days in the wilderness and all his disciples saying, so how was your retreat? How did it go? And he said, well, you know, it was, it was hard. It was 40 days of deprivation and privation. And I was, you know, really hoping to feel close to dad uh, by the end of it. And you'll never guess who I met instead. Um, and, uh, and so he says to me, he says, take these stones and turn them into bread. But I said to him, man shall not live on bread alone. Bam! checkmate Satan Uh, three times he tried that but I got him every time and yeah I sent him back and it's just a little braggadocious you know and I I don't see that that conversation uh, has any uh, uh, you know any any way of being read other than a a symbolic conversation about maybe about Jesus's ministry maybe about what Jesus had to overcome with his calling and his vocation maybe Jesus being a type for all of us in our journey of transformation by dying and rising to new life so that I have to take it as symbolic and it, it highlights for me the way that the scriptures are holy that they're not holy because they are they are eyewitness accounts of amazing miracles they're holy because they're God talking to us. And it's not just that God talked to us 2,000 years ago. God continues to talk to us through these texts. So my question with these texts is always, what is God saying to us through them today? Because God wrote them. And yes, there was a historical process and some editing and various authors. And all of that scholarly stuff is true. And through that process, God was active and left us with this great gift that we continue to read because it continues to feed us and guide us on our own Christian journeys. So, the temptations. Oh, I missed the last part of the braggadocious Jesus. Um, The final thing he says is, and after I told you all this, don't tell Mark. Um, Because this story isn't in Mark. It's only in Matthew and Luke. And don't tell John either. Um, It's just in Matthew and Luke, right? And so Mark I mean, this is in chapter one of Mark, verse 21 or something like that. I mean, we're just 20 verses into Mark's gospel. And Mark says he goes and he goes to the wilderness. He gets baptized and immediately he goes to the wilderness and he fasts for 40 days. And the the beasts and the angels wait upon him. End of story. Now, let's let's get on with the rest of the story, says Mark. 
And, and I, Mark, which I believe was the first one written, I think Mark was doing that story. I, I have no doubt that Jesus historically went in the wilderness to fast and, and, and prepare for his ministry. I have no doubt at all that there's some historical truth to that. But I think that uh, Mark has the right of it. But there's also a symbolic meaning to that because in Jesus being in the wilderness for 40 days, the, the mapping onto the Old Testament story is perfect because you have the, the Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. So the is- Israelites went through this journey of transformation. And remember, the number 40 always is a symbol for birth. It's the 40 weeks of pregnancy. Whenever you see the, word, the number 40 in the Bible, something new is being born. And so a new Israel was born in the wilderness that was ready to inherit the promised land. And so Jesus recapitulates that. And so something new is being born in Jesus that when he comes back is already ready. And so I believe that what Mark was doing when he, taught, he told this story was simply saying that that the whole story of Jesus, right through the, 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 the conversations, the teachings, the crucifixion and resurrection, and remember in Mark's gospel, it's basically a, a passion narrative with a long introduction. I mean, the whole thing that Mark is getting to is that cross story, where, where Mark is putting it into the Israelite story and saying, these are the battles as the Israelites are entering into the Holy Land. It's the Joshua period. And of course, the name connection between Jesus and Joshua makes the mapping perfect. So, so the, the whole Jesus narrative is the holy warfare of the people of God coming into the promised land and building a kingdom, right? So Mark puts this, you know, to say, you know, if you're going to map Jesus's story onto the previous story of God's people, this is where it goes. And on that, Matthew and Luke inherited this tradition of saying Jesus was tempted. And this, these temptations were things that Jesus overcame and that, that the nature of this kingdom that was being born in the wilderness with Jesus's retreat is a kingdom that overcame these temptations and continues to struggle with them and overcome them. So there are three temptations that are listed for us. And they are, the first one is to live by bread alone. That's the, the first one. Is, and the question with all of these temptations is, what are you living for? What matters in your life? Where do you put your energy? And if the energy is on comfort, pleasure, um, security, bread, food, you need food, you need bread, but is that what you live for? Is that, is, is that all that you live for in your life? Is a nice, comfortable life until you die and saved up enough money for the retirement home of your choice? Um, is that the point of life? Okay. Clearly the first temptation is just to stop there. If, if I'm having a good time, we're done. The second one is kind of my favorite because it, it's, the, it's the real temptation for church folks. Um, we'll get to the third one. But the, the second one is my favorite because it's take yourself up to the top of a mountain. And here I have to do a little exegetical sidebar again. In Luke, it's a temple. Matthew, it's a mountain because Jesus is the new Moses. And so Jesus goes up a mountain. He always goes up a mountain in, in Matthew's gospel. And so, of course, even in the temptation, Satan takes him up a mountain. And, sa- and, and sorry, I'm, I'm doing the third one already. Uh, no, it's the second one. The th- throw yourself off. It's the throw yourself off. I'm, this, is what I, this is what you get. No notes. This is what happens. Uh, so throw yourself off of here, right? Um, go up the mountain, throw yourself off of here. 
let the angels catch you. And this is my favorite because as a, ch- as a church, we can do this. And I've heard so many times that if it's the Lord's will, it will happen. Um, and, and we just need to trust in God. And, and we do that in a way that absolves us from any responsibility of making prudent decisions. Um, and so we, we say, oh, well, and away we go. So it, I mean, many times have I felt that our processes as a church folks, that sometimes it's a bit of a get out of jail free for due diligence. Um, and, and for me, that's the second temptation. It's, it's not taking our responsibility for the things we have to do. Yes, we have to rest in God's grace. Absolutely. We are not saved by our own efforts and our own works and our own great judgment. At some level, we have to depend on God's power and mercy to work within us and through us. Um, but when you go, okay, whee, you're probably doing it wrong. So that's the second one. And the third one, of course, is the kingdoms of the world. And this was the temptation for the church in Christendom. I don't think we're being offered this one anymore. I mean, you've got the Joel Austins and folks like that that are still doing that one. Um, but this notion that all the kingdoms can be yours. And the interesting thing for me about that is the connection to the psalm this morning, where this is explicitly put into the mouth of God, saying all these kingdoms shall be yours if you are faithful to me, that the, that, that the Lord, the, the God of Israel, will have command over all the earth. And of course, there's a way that you can get that right and a way that you can get that spectacularly wrong. And the way that you get that right is that when in, the, in the, the kingdom of God that we know through Jesus, this is a kingdom marked by peace and love and kindness and care for the widow and the orphan and the outcast. And when we do that, then prosperity rings. Then, then things go well for everyone. And we've seen examples of that when relationships are good and trusting and people honor their contracts and you don't have to, you know, fight with everybody to get every little morsel out of them, then everything works better and there is prosperity and there is uh, righteousness. One of the awkward things for me is that there's also military power. Um, I've done, you know, a lot of reading about uh, politics and war and, and the amazing thing about countries that have strong domestic peaceful relationships internally is that they're very very strong militarily and so there is some sense in which that old testament promise is true on a societal level as an awkward and uncomfortable as that makes me feel as someone that that thinks that military con- uh, conquest is the furthest thing from the kingdom of god but but that's an aside the the mistake of course is to become attached and to live for the pride and the power and the conquest. And you see this in contemporary life, not so much in our context here in Canada, but certainly those folks that want to win the country back for Christ. Um, there, there is more than a whiff of we need to be in charge in order for this to make any sense. And if we don't have any worldly power, then what's the point? Um, and that's the third temptation of Christ. So we, we're offered these things to reflect on them. And so you can take that as I've been doing. And this is, so I'm, I'm giving you a couple of sermons. This is the first one, which is the standard one. How do the temptations apply to us? And what, what are the learnings there for us as we follow in Jesus' footsteps? The second sermon is 
more to do with this notion of retreat. And that's the one that's a little bit more interesting to me currently, having just done a little retreat and looking forward to another bigger one. Um, that what happens on retreat when you do it right is not that you meet God, it's that you meet Satan. That when, when you take time deliberately to stop with the distractions of your life and the preoccupations of your life, you are confronted with things that come up inside yourself that you'd rather avoid. And so you find yourself recognizing the things in you that come not from God, but from the other place. And so there's, there's something that is quite beautiful about imagining Jesus having the same thing happen to him as he goes out into the wilderness and up come these darker realities in Jesus' own psyche where I could totally have all the food if I really wanted to where I could have the angels catch me if I wanted to. I could take over the world if I wanted to. But that's not coming from the true place of my oneness with my father. And so that little dialogue of the owning and the checkmate Satan stuff is just a, just a way of, of highlighting perhaps what came up in Jesus when he took the time to be alone with God and see what happens. Um, this is also something that happens in apophatic prayer, which is, uh, I'm talking about things to do in Lent, by the way, retreats, apophatic prayer, prayer without words, prayer where you just sit and you get Christian meditation, where you just don't have any words, you don't follow a program, you just sit and are, allow yourself to rest in the presence of God. And that is really hard. I'm still really bad at it, frankly. I've tried it many times and then I give up and then I try again. Because what happens inevitably is that my brain goes all kinds of horrible places. Um, Distractions, certainly. Um, Preoccupations, obsessions, resentments, grievances. That's the stuff that starts coming up when I'm actually quiet and I'm not distracting myself. And so I find that as I engage in those practices, and certainly the second half of life, there's lots to reflect on. Um, As I engage in those practices... I'm more aware of the dark places um, than the light ones. But that's precisely the value. Because the the reality of sin, the readings are all about sin this morning, is that sin is a separation from God. And we become separated from God and from ourselves by the temptations, by the preoccupations and the the things in life that we devote our energy and time to um, that get in the way of that awareness of what's actually working in our souls. So Lent, the 40 days of Lent, as we enter into them, for me, it will, as usual, be a time of reflection, um, of, of doing the work, of asking what's going on inside me, Um, And usually it means some sort of wrestling, some sort of confrontation with the temptations, with the ways in which I am still separated from myself and my God, and ways in which I can rest on Jesus to pull me through and, and overcome whatever it is that's keeping me there so that I can, in the end, have something new born in me. And it's not one and done. I'm sorry to say. It's not, you know, this Lent is also a period of preparing for uh, baptism. 
And so you have a catechumenate period where you learn about the faith and you become transformed and you're baptized the, uh, at Easter or the Easter vigil and you take on a new name to symbolize your new self in Christ and then you're done. Yeah, sure. Uh, doesn't work that way. I, I was baptized as a child. I, was, I became intentionally Christian at the age of 15. I still am not very good at it. And I still come at it again and again. And every time I come at it, I have to go deeper and deeper and deeper. Really? I still have more to do? Yes, you do. So that for me is Lent. That's Lent every year. And Lent is an opportunity to enter into that silence, into the 40 days in the wilderness, to go into the wilderness, however that works for you, um, and find out what is waiting for you there. And, and, and when you are able to confront those things, you are able to go a little bit deeper and in and through that have something new born in you which is less separated from yourself and from your God. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.